This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is an ABC podcast. Up there, Kazaylee. Okay, that's one for train spotters. Um, a carryover <laughs> <laughs> from last week. Good plan, good plan. Who thought of this one? Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Out of Sanctum for another week. I'm Emma Race and I'm so thrilled to be in the Stu studio with my <laughs> Sanctum football-loving sisters. I'm going to let you introduce yourself. I'm Nicole Hayes. I'm Alicia Sometimes. And I'm Lucy Race. Hello. This is all out of order and it's a bit, it's thrown me. No, we normally I have know. Lucy. I, I normally sit over the other side. Yeah. Aren't you the Racky sisters? <laughs> is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Rache. Do you know what? We're in, we're in Australia, so you can say it any way you like. Alicia Satamis. <laughs> it's Summer Tims. Summer Tims. Shall we kick it off? Lucy, your boy Ruffy did oh, something my pretty boy Ruffy. lovely. He did. So Ruffy, it was a big story last week that he went back to the VFL and on field he did really well. 17 disposals, five goals. But what he really did was showed his class mm. in a little moment that was caught by the cameras so of him looking like he was coaching Reuben William. <laughs> that just sums him up. I've That's always, his opponent. That's the key. It's, he's coaching his opponent. opponent. Yeah. <laughs> I've left that bit out That's of the story. Small... You know how much I love Jared Roughhead as a player. I think he's, there's just always been something about him that I've loved. He's really down to earth and I'm pleased that everyone got to see that. He might be the most popular player in terms of like by non-Hawthorne people, I reckon out there. Everybody yeah. loves the rough. You're probably right that he was coaching and, uh, but he could have been saying, there's a seagull over there. He could have <laughs> been. A seagull over there and... and it could have been directions. It was also interesting because under the umbrella of him going back to the VFL, it's a bit of a moment when you send a champion like yeah. that back to the VFL. I think it's a, it's a huge statement from Clarko, but it's also a huge statement from Ruffy to step up and, and not be, not be a dick about it. Yeah. You know, like to actually be. <laughs> take it seriously. To take it seriously, but also be gracious in mm. that moment. I just mentioned, you know, some people were saying don't be a dick. I was under the impression that the Swans had a no dickhead policy. It's mm. on their T-shirts. But Dane Rampy would just wear, yes. oh. he just had a day out, didn't he? <laughs> I don't know what was in his Rampy's day out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask you a question, though? Do you, think, Rampy. do you think the players had a were doing a Mother's Day tribute round and trying to reach peak childish last week. Oh, like because as a tribute to their parents. As a tribute saying, to their I'm parents. I'm still your so little boy. There is a story of the West Coast Eagles players who jumped in a lift and then got stuck in it. Oh, you. Now that's <laughs> something that I yell at my children about all the time because they like to jump in a lift. 
I was thinking with Gary Ablett doing the same thing uh. the second week in a row. He was like, Gary, if you do that one more time, you're going to get in big trouble. And he's like, really? Watch me. <laughs> <laughs> You'll take someone's eye out with that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then that vision of Rampy up a point post. Mm, he was up mm. a point post. It actually reminds me of those times when you'd lose the children at the cricket and they'd all be on top of the cricket nets. Yes. Are we ready to roll up our sleeves in LA, ladies? Yes, let's yes. go. Alicia literally rolled her sleeves <laughs> yep, up just yep. then. Okay, she's wearing the long sleeves Almost today. Almost out with her elbow. <laughs> okay, so during the week, a show that has been around and setting the tone for footy chat for 20 plus years was taken off the air. The footy show in its recent incarnation has been very different to the footy show of old and the footy show that actually has probably got the most traction, the type of tone and personnel on that show that gave it the kind of massive headlines that it was always making. You know, you say for every action, there is a reaction. I'd say in a, in a lot of ways that our podcast is a reaction to the footy show. No, I think that I think it is, and, and that culture that allowed the footy show to be so popular. Um, we definitely felt like our voices weren't being heard. In fact, our voices were being mocked. The revamped version is really different, as you said, Em, and I actually think it was a real mistake that they didn't shut down the footy show as it was at the end of last year, come up with the, a new format, a new look. Those same panellists would have been fantastic, I think, if given the free air, but they had, there was too much negative legacy and using that name, dragging it up, I think was a big mistake and clearly it's turned out to be a mistake. I don't think you can ever separate the footy show from Sam Newman Mm -hmm. and the fact that for so many years his homophobic, transphobic, sexist, racist, ableist speech, have I got everything? I think so. And and just general meanness and nastiness. Mm. Whether you like it or not, that actually tarnished everybody who worked with him and sat alongside him and will always in my mind because as he was indulging in that divisive form of presentation that he really adopted and made his own, he had accomplices who were laughing alongside him at worst and then only employing mock horror at best. I wish that the show had finished on his watch. Yep. Well, some some would say that it kind of did, did. I suppose. Yeah. We haven't talked about Sam Newman on this show ever, really. Mm. We've very rarely mentioned him because we didn't want to give him extra air. But when you look back over the catalogue of people that he went out to offend, what gave him the right? What gave him the platform and the credibility? And we were reminded of this every single time Eddie Maguire introduced him to the show was that he was a 300-game champion for Geelong. That doesn't give you credit in the bank to do that to anyone. I can't think what would give you credits in the bank to do that. But what it did is it tarnished 300 game champions of the game. It said, this is what they do. This is what they get a license to do. If they've played 300 games at this level. And that just seems so ass about to me. I could just never understand or come at it. It wasn't, it wasn't my version of the game. He would punch down his street talk at times besides being quite nasty. He had a go at just about anyone. If you, he had a sort of a tall poppy syndrome, but mainly for women or anyone who he considered other, he would cut them down. In his defense, people said that he was a good bloke and they may have known him and maybe he was to them, but they were accomplices because he, and complicit in what he was doing because they didn't stand up for what was right. And I think that it was beyond jokes. It was beyond just a little teasing. It really had profound impact of young people watching, boy, girl, doesn't matter. Um, This is who 
the nation saw as funny. It went on too long. And it's a pity because when it started, it was It was exciting. much more open, wasn't it, and accessible, yeah. So we were asked during the week what our origin story was because we've got a lot of new listeners and our origin story is almost kind of entwined with mm. um, the footy show in some senses. To give you a snapshot, the six of us came together because we were all Hawthorne supporters, don't hate us, mm. and we were friends via Messenger. Um, three of us obviously had known each other from birth. <laughs> and, we shared a bar. Um, <laughs> Alicia and I had worked together at a community radio station, played footy together a couple of times, and Alicia and Nicole, you guys had known each other through We met because you interviewed me because of my book, my first book. And then I had known Kate Sear, I'd met her through a friend of mine who, of course, is a lawyer, all Hawthorne fans. And when we started the group of what would become the Outer Sanctum, there was about 15 people (laughs) in a chat group and everyone saw you'd see like, Georgina has left the group, Amy has left the group, and there was just six hardcores left. (laughs) These six hardcores had never all met in real life, but Nicole and Alicia wrote a book called From the Outer. Outer. I do remember what it was called. I was wondering if you were going to jump in. And some of our chats ended up in that book. We all got together and had dinner one night to launch the book. It was the first time we met and it was like a meeting of a sisterhood. I remember it differently. We met in person to see a game. Oh, that's, that's right. right. That's first time. And you see it differently because it was different. It was yeah. different. Um, we, we went to the see, footy first. We watched the footy first. Then we started the chat group. Mm. Then everyone left. But then we decided to include this. Yeah, so. we collaborated on that. Then yeah. that's right. So anyway, right. I, I'm a stickler for facts. And then someone at the dinner said we should start a podcast. And then two days later, we did. We did. Start that's a true. That is true. <laughs> and we started a podcast, and we didn't really think anyone would ever listen. But 15 episodes in, I think it was about episode 14. Episode 14. Lucy had found a story about Eddie Maguire saying that he would like to drown Caroline Wilson at the MND Big Freeze, which happened on Queen's birthday weekend. For a while, we weren't entirely sure that that was really a story because none of the mainstream media had covered it, Lucy. No, they hadn't. And um, it was the week that they were announcing who was going to get the licences for the first AFLW season, we were deciding what we were going to talk about that week. And I came to you all and said, I know we want to have a really positive chat this week, but I found this story. I can't find any story about it anywhere else. And the original story disappeared. And the original story did disappear. We decided that even though we wanted to have a supremely positive um, discussion about AFLW and what that would mean, that we would talk about the fact that Eddie Maguire and James Brayshaw and Danny Frawley had spoken in a really misogynistic way about Carolyn Wilson. And we decided that that was a really important thing to talk about because Nobody else at was. that point we mm. were already talking about how important language is and the role that disrespect can play in violence against women. And then you gave the story to Erin Riley, who's a blogger out of Sydney, Nick. I think I spoke to a couple of journos and Erin and had seen our tweets about it and she rang me and said, can I run with this story or do you want to? And I was like, no, no, this is your gig. Go for it. And her blog that she wrote went viral. So then suddenly we got a lot of downloads we weren't expecting. And I think by Monday, it was the middle of an election campaign. And I remember Malcolm Turnbull being asked about that conversation. Mm-hmm. And I, so it just kind of became this beast unto itself. And Bill Shorten pulled out of doing an interview on the Hot Breakfast with Eddie Maguire. 
because, uh, of, because it. of it. And at the same time, we should acknowledge that Josh Pinn found the audio from um, Triple M and the audio was key. As soon as people heard the audio, yeah, they went, yeah. oh, what is wrong? There was even a press conference with Gil McLaughlin. We got called into the AFL to have a conversation with them. It was the first time they'd ever really heard of us and we'd ruined their weekend mm. apparently. Mm. But they were in equal measures weirdly not proud. proud. They were like, no, okay, you said this no, thing. No, there's, there's a quote from that press conference where Gillan McLaughlin is speaking to the media and he says, the fact that the comments were made on radio a week ago and were not called out is an indictment on everyone working in football. Then the story took on a life of its own and it ended up being on the front page of all the national newspapers and it was a huge topic conversation and people actually lost friends and even family mm. members were bickering about whether we'd gone too far and whether things had, it was PC gone mad and all that kind of stuff. The positive side was that Caroline Wilson reached out to us and said, thank you, no one's offered me support like this before. But the other thing that happened was that Sam Newman took to the footy show. He had a message for us and for Erin Riley, who were um, some podcasters and some bloggers. If you search for a cause to fit a narrative that you're peddling, eventually you'll convince yourself that you've stumbled onto something, as most of the cowardly excrement have. Those excrement who have weighed into this, I would like to mention their names, but as no one reads, watches or listens to them because they're in second tier media outlets, I won't bother. But if you spray a piece of excrement with perfume or put aftershave on a piece of excrement, at the end of the day, it's still a piece of excrement. Finally, the jig's up, Caro, honestly and truly. You're becoming an embarrassment. And even if you were underwater, you'd still be talking. And the cheers is what gives me chills. Exactly. You um, watched that footage with your daughter, who was twelve at the time, Nicole. What was the what was that experience? Yeah, like? I don't I don't know what I was thinking. Actually, she was just sitting. I didn't I didn't really think we were saying well, this is obviously aimed at us. And and I remember my twelve year old saying to me, "Mummy, what's excrement?" I hesitated about telling her what it meant. And then I did. And her face, I'll never forget the look on her face when she realised that they were saying that about her mum and her friends. And um, I'm sorry. Sorry. No, it's it's actually really important to, I think, leave our emotional response to this in because... We've never talked about it. We've never talked about it. And it was actually a really frightening week. We were really lucky that we had each other because we were all able to understand, I guess, our experience in it. But I remember going to bed one night and there'd been talk about whether a major sponsor was going to pull out of um, sponsoring the Collingwood Football Club. And I was terrified because all I could think of is what's going to happen if this, you know, if this affects the women's team that was going to be playing for Collingwood or if the club in a financial way, what sort of hate is going to keep coming back. There was a moment in that Sam Newman, which luckily you can't see because it's audio, but where he looks down the camera and he points his finger and it was so threatening and it was a really, it was a really frightening time. But you talk about the positives that came out of that. I really think that was the first time that we had a big conversation nationally about language and why language is important and why we need to be really understanding of a culture of disrespect and what that means. So I really take the positives out of that week. 
isn't it incredible that you're talking about that, that you were scared of blowback and how scary that is. And we were six of us together. Erin was on her own. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Josh obviously was copying a lot too, but just the fact that that's what you're scared of for speaking out. We spoke our opinion. He spoke his opinion. Was he scared of getting attacked or? um... One thing that I, I just remembered then was that my husband got a call from one of the people who was a participant in that drowning conversation who was beside himself and he was begging my husband for him, for Andy to call us off, call the bloggers off. Like as if we were the ones with power in that situation. He was, and this person who, whose name I won't mention, but was saying, you know, this is my livelihood. This I'm like, Mm -hmm. not my problem, dude. You said it, you laughed. You've said it and laughed a million times mm. over. It's not for me. You did mm. it. I just said, I the just repeated people what owned you it. said. The people started owning yeah, it. They yeah, they did. Of course they did. Back then we were saying language was everything. And I thought that one day we would run out of things to say and things to talk about. <laughs> but then, of course, BT comes out with his commentary about the name Orazio Fantasia or Orazio Fantasia if you're BT. For me, it was not about the way that he was pronouncing it correctly, incorrectly. There was a sticking point for me. Can anyone guess what that sticking point <laughs> may have been, Nicole Hayes? I feel like it was because he didn't Hubris. care what Orazio <laughs> thought about it. It was, um, we're in Australia and we he can say it however he wants. This is a thing that ha- resonated for me particularly because it might not be on- obvious to anyone who meets me or has seen photos of me, but my heritage is actually Italian, Sicilian. Despite the fair hair and the light skin, my family look quite dark and quite different, but I, on the other hand, don't. And you wouldn't know it by our names either, or certainly not anymore. Back in 1929, mum was christened Yolanda Maria. But that was a predominantly Anglo-Celtic Melbourne. And within a decade, there'd be a war with Italy. My grandparents had already embraced their new home as naturalised Australians. Neither of them spoke English when they first got here, but they tried to learn and they tried to be part of the community as, as much as they could be. That became more and more difficult because he was living. they were living in a very Anglo-Celtic Melbourne. They were surrounded by working class, working class Australians who did not look anything like he did. And they certainly didn't have names that sounded like his. No one could or would pronounce my grandparents' given names. So my grandfather, Giovanni, became John and my grandmother, Nunziata, became Nancy. And their children, their all daughters, who begged their parents to speak English when they brought their friends over, changed their names too. So Maria became Marie, Elvira became Elvi, and my mum, Yolanda, became Linda. During the Second World War, her family avoided internment, but their fierce determination to be accepted as Australians was shaken many times. And one time in particular, after the notorious six o'clock swill, a couple of drunks accosted my grandfather in his shop, insulting his family heritage, their food, their culture, and mocking his Italian name. They also gave him a new name, Dago. Um, My mum was a young teenager at the time and was witness to this, fiercely protective of her parents, but also uncomfortable with her difference. She told the drunk men that her dad was a hardworking Australian and they had no right to say otherwise. And for context, my mum as an adult is currently four foot 11 in heels. (laughs) So standing up to drunk, abusive, racist men was quite a statement. There are lots of other smaller moments along the way, lots of comments on the bus and the tram and being told that they should go home all different things that reminded my mother's family that they didn't fully belong. Their reaction was to dig in deeper, to be more Australian and to assimilate more. So my aunts all married Anglo-Australians, as did my mum, who was firmly Linda to all but my dad. And when she had children, she gave us Anglo names. I never met my grandparents. They died long before I was born. And my mum can't remember her Italian, though it was her first and only language until she started school. So in 2019, one generation later, the Italian half of my culture has effectively been wiped from our family. 
There's an idea in political studies called cultural erasure, where colonising powers forced Indigenous peoples to adopt features of their culture to try to destroy their own. In Australia, it meant separation from community, banning language, adopting Judeo-Christian rituals and changing or erasing Indigenous names. I'm not equating the Indigenous experience with that of migrants in this country, but there are parallels. The process of assimilation also drew on the politics, drew down on the politics of names. And we've seen that in other spaces, every time someone dead names Caitlyn Jenner, we know what they mean. They're calling into question Caitlyn's very identity, the essence of who she is, her right even to exist. Because names are integral to who we are and how we choose to identify. Whether our name is taken from us or we're pressured or forced to reject our culture or even whether we choose to as a means of fitting in, there's something inherently political and deeply personal about deploying our names against us. And when a public figure like Brian Taylor deliberately and willfully ignored Orazio's chosen name because this is Australia, as he said. That's what he was trying to do. I know Bita has since said he was taken out of context and he checked with Orazio before, but that's not what he said when he had a microphone. And a middle-aged straight white man, man can't use language that's been associated with generations of discrimination and racism and not draw criticism, even if he thinks it's a joke. He doesn't get to decide when it's time to move on, when it might become joke-worthy. At best, it speaks to a profound ignorance of our history, at worst, it smacks of racism. Thank you so much, Nick. That's really emotional to hear that. And I know from posting that story on our Facebook page that a lot of our listeners have had similar experiences and that they really do have a profound effect on people. And it left me thinking about, of course, we need so many systemic changes, but empathy, you know, that word empathy, walking a mile in somebody else's shoes. One of the things the psychology today organisation say about empathy is that when it's present, it facilitates pro-social or positive behaviours that come from within rather than being forced. And it reminds me of a quote by Tanahisi Coates, who's an American journalist and writer. And he talks about the idea of empathy. He says, I do not mean a soft, flattering, hand-holding empathy. I mean a muscular empathy rooted in curiosity. And what he's asking people to do is to ask yourself the hard questions. It's only when we ask ourselves the hard questions that we are going to be able to move forward and evolve. And he did say further to what you were saying about the apology that it was part of a jokey conversation in which callers were taking the piss out of each other. I think you're right, Lucy, that empathy is a great way to start because there's a whole history of what you're saying, Nicole, and I think so many people identify with that. Just even on the cricket, Hyung Chung was always called the wrong name um, except for Jim Courier and the people just said, oh, well, it doesn't matter and they just kept doing it. Maybe we should do what the Union of European Football Associations do, the UEFA. They have a list of pronunciations on their website of every player because there's so many different continents, so many different backgrounds that they say, this is the way you pronounce it. This is the way they'd prefer it to be pronounced. What about the stark difference between Lucy Zellick pronouncing people's names correctly and the hate and the vitriol she got for that and then BT saying we're in Australia I'll say it however I like it reminded me of a quote that I actually put in my article this week about um, Stephen Milne being put in the Hall of Fame and what it said to Danny Armstrong who was a St Kilda supporter that I spoke to and she said basically what it said to her is this isn't a place for you it's a place for us and we're not changing And I feel like I heard that in BT. This story has been replayed so many times throughout the AFL story. Haritia Lamamba is one person who faced this. He has moved away from the game 
but he brought so much and we will live to regret letting him and his brain and his heart leave this game in the way that it did, almost under a cloud of similar bigotry as Adam Goods. Um, Take a listen to Heretier talking about when he lost his name. People found it difficult to say Heretier. Heretier starts with H and Harry was a name that people use and so Heretier turned into Harry Uh, when I was about nine the name Lumumba was changed to O'Brien. It went from Editia Luzavi Dezabelli's Lumumba to Harry Ralph Dezabelli's O'Brien. A complete severing of my identity. Your name is a symbol and symbols affect your subconscious mind. And so whenever I would say, just on a subconscious level, writing my name, Harry O'Brien, was activating the, the colonization. Where does that name come from? And it comes Straps from the oppression of, of whiteness and the power that whiteness has mm-hmm. to whitewash. That was taken from Silent Ways, which is a podcast that Eretier's sister did about systematic abuse that um, their family faced. I do implore you to listen. It's really hard listening, that podcast, but gosh, it's amazing. Moving on, Nike this week, Alicia, has been under fire for no maternity leave support. There was a beautiful video that you shared with us all. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, I know you guys talked about the Dream With Us ad. Nike did this beautiful ad about young women just doing anything that they want. It was... uh, the Dream With Us ad. And it got a lot of credit, which it was well-deserved. But just on Mother's Day, Alicia Montano, who's an Olympic runner and three-time US national champion... She was part of a video <laughs> during the week that explained her sponsorship from Nike from 2010 to 2016 that did not guarantee her salary during pregnancy or postpartum and that she's not alone. What's really amazing, she says in this video that we'll pause your contract and stop paying you. That's what Nike says. It strips you of health insurance. She says, I was pissed that there, that there wasn't a policy in place that would protect me. Stop treating pregnancies like injuries. There was NDAs involved in keeping women silent. She says, remind them, great athletes never back down. Hashtag dream maternity. She's saying it's more than advertising and the economics of sports like track and field are different than those of professional sports like basketball or soccer. Uh, In track, athletes aren't paid by a salary or a league. Instead, their income comes almost exclusively from sponsorships. So this five-minute video by the New York Times is such a beautiful, strong... Yeah, <laughs> it's fabulous. It really um, is. ...message. And just the fact that it's so it's so important that being a mother and a champion was a crazy dream and it didn't have to be the title. And I think it's so true. I don't know. When I was pregnant, I felt like I was losing my whole world in, in so many ways. Um, you're at a vulnerable time. It isn't a disease. You are not injured. It is a period of time that uh, obviously... Serena Williams is an exception to the rule. Um, Nike have come back and said that they are looking at what they are, are doing. And But I think that not enough is done and that sports women need to be treated better. Do you know what I kept thinking about when I was watching that video was how many times we've had shots of Roger Federer going for his 30th or 40th Grand Slam title or whatever it is yeah. while they cut to his wife and they talk about how they've got two sets of twins. I'm like, he never had to miss a game. He never had no, to no. miss. His muscles did didn't tear, he didn't have to fight his way back with a brand new body. Those pathways have never been blocked for him, yet he still is the father. He's mm-hmm. still a parent, just yeah. as his wife is a parent. I think her adding her voice to this in the way that she has is so brave. It will actually change the course mm. of history. Who knows? Maybe being a mother and a champion was a crazy dream. 
but it didn't have to be. So come on, Nike. When are you going to start dreaming crazy? Interesting this week, I saw um, a lot of clubs tweeting about Africa Day, Lucy. It would look like a beautiful celebration of a culture that we, I don't think we've really celebrated African influence on AFL culture. Well, it's interesting because Africa Day is it's actually celebrated on May 25 and it's to commemorate the 1963 founding of the African Union. It's celebrated in Africa and in many countries around the world. So the AFL um, being part of this is being part of a much bigger um, celebration in Australia. It celebrates the diverse African-Australian cultures and also provides various platforms for people of diverse backgrounds to meet and socialise and share experiences. So you will have seen these images all over social media. Um, a series of photos were taken of people from the AFL, including people like Magic Door and Isaac Quaynor. Those photos will be um, auctioned off at a gala dinner that's coming up. Beautiful. I'm Chelsea Randall and you're listening to The Outer Sanctum. Oh, it gives me such great pleasure to welcome to the Outer Sanctum a man who played 323 games for the St Kilda Football Club. He's just been elevated to legend at the St Kilda Footy Club. It's the helmet-wearing, cloud-yelling-at, grumpy old man of ABC Grandstand. It's my BFF, Nathan Burke. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum. Hello, Em. I've had lots of introductions in my time and that was another one. Um, but uh, lovely to be here with you all. Um, it's so nice to have you in here on the rope so we can ask you all the questions we've always wanted to ask an actual legend of the game. We very rarely have male footballers in this Outer Sanctum Ooh, of okay. ours. So no. you'd be one of only a handful, Breaking I think. Breaking new ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're not a hawker. I'm a groundbreaker. <laughs> <laughs> we have lots of questions for you, but let's start with this one. You are an absolute convert, in fact, even a pioneer of women's footy. Why is women's football so important? Good good question. Um, I, I've got three daughters. I've got three sisters. I've got about six nieces. My elder sisters, I'm, I'm the youngest of four growing up. It was it was basketball or netball. That was pretty much it. Um, one of them did sort of dabbling cricket over, over summer. They all did very well at a sort of a, a local state level, but that was sort of pretty much it for, for team sport. And even with, with my own daughters, they've all tried soccer. That was their main sport coming through. Uh, got to a pretty high level there, but weren't, weren't really loving it. I just think to have another elite pathway where females can play the game at a high level, get paid to do it, um, get all the advantages that, that come with uh, elite sport and a professional environment and, and all the, the life learnings that go along with that, uh, a whole new avenue has opened up. And I think we need to sort of really nurture that and treat that so that the, the next generations coming through um, have that opportunity. And it's not just your netball and basketball traditional paths. You're working, de- you're down at St Kilda. Yes. We're so excited to see that St Kilda's going to come into the AFLW. How are things going? Going really well. Uh, very well indeed. We um, entered the VFLW last year, put a, a team together called the, the Southern Saints. We 
took a, a bit of a different path. We only really had the, the one AFLW player, uh, Lauren Arnell, came on board just to help us out with some experience. But we built a, a culture with local footballers, chose really great people. The idea being that if we create that, we get that, you only get that one go, creating that right culture and right environment. So we did that really, really well. We had seven girls that got drafted off to other clubs, which was really exciting for us. Most of them have come back, which is great. But we thought if we create the right culture, the right environment, word will spread and that will do our recruiting for us. We'll have people say, hey, St Kilda's a really good program. We want to go down there and play with them. And it's turned out to be that way. We've picked up about a dozen or so girls from other clubs that have come across and have agreed to come across and again they fit the mould of being really really good people we think you know good good people will make great players and that's what we're building down at the Saints so going by from last year to this year just the, the skill level and development of the players has just gone through the roof Everybody said, you're not going to win a game last year. We won five. We lost another four by four points. And uh, last year, Collingwood, we kicked one point for the whole game against Collingwood. And we beat them by 35 points last week. So shows a bit of progression in, in that area. Off to Northern Territory this weekend, um, which is really exciting for the girls. You know, to have a, a football trip like that, three-day football trip, and learn the, the elite pathways, what you do when you're traveling and all that, and diet and sleep and managing your body, all that sort of stuff. That's great learning lessons. Whether they go on to play AFLW or not, uh, whether they just go into coaching or develop in, in, in the game, that, that will be a great experience for them. Women's footy as a pathway for former players, male and female, mm. is just booming. But you're an early adopter, as Em said. I imagine that the credibility factor has shifted over recent years amongst, say, your former colleagues, ex-players. Have you noticed a change in that? I have. There, there are still some dinosaurs out there. They mm. just go, yeah, it's no good, the skills are no good, and blah, blah, blah. And I just simply say, well, don't watch. Mm. Um, <laughs> it's yeah. as simple as that. Don't whinge, don't watch, don't go. That, that's fine. But I'm sure if, you, if your little girl wants to play at some stage, well, then, then you'll jump on board. Even down at St Kilda, uh, there's a bit of a crossover between the guys leaving during the day and when, when the, the ladies are turning up at night. Just the interaction between the two, the, the players, they want to hang around and, and have a chat. Dan Hanabry's doing his rehab and he's going up and int- introducing himself to all the girls. So there is that there's that real cross-pollination. There's not, oh, there's the girls' team, we better get out, or the girls can't come in because the guys are in there. It's, it's really mixing together, and I think that's a, a really good point. How do you encourage people to be mentors, and how are you yourself a mentor? The AFL do have a, a She Can Coach program, uh, and there's a few of us old fellas with David Parkin and, and a few others. We've been assigned some female coaches coming through. But e- even this year at St Kilda, I, I'm not technically an assistant coach. Georgia Walker, who was on Collingwood's original list, unfortunately Georgia had to give the game away for a period of time with too many concussions. So what we've done is Georgia will coach the defence and I will sort of help Georgia. So I'm Georgia's assistant in many ways, which, which is great. And she, she can do the game day coaching through my ABC commitments. I can't get to every game, but I'm there three nights a week uh, helping Georgia. This year I'm coaching the, the Vic Metro under 18 girls and uh, I am pestering ABC's own Lauren Arnell to, to come on board <laughs> and uh, help me out with that because uh, Lauren is somebody I know you're talking all about, but females getting into the game. I'm working underneath Peter Searle, absolutely has the ability and skills to become uh, a, as high as she wants in the AFL game. Lauren Arnell is another one coming through. Uh, we need to nurture these girls because they should be working in men's programs as early as this year because they would add so much. 
Berkey, there's been a bit of, well, it's been a lot of talk this week about Dane Rampey and you've had your time on the match <laughs> review panel. I'd like to ask you your opinion of what he said to the umpire. In my day, absolutely nothing would have happened. And that just, just the society moves forward. And I'm sure there's a lot of old players out there going, that's ridiculous. I've said far worse. And I, I must admit, I've said far worse to umpires over the years, but uh, times change. Two parts of that. One is where we're trying to have respect for umpires. That's just not showing respect for an umpire. So I think that was the main reason why he was fined. And the second one is it just continues that narrative of potentially talking down females. So it, it is a derogatory comment. So you're saying talk like a little girl. That wasn't meant as a compliment. Mm-mm. That was meant as something derogatory. So that's not what we want to talk. That's that's not the, the language that we, we want to use. So I think they've sort of slapped him with a bit of a wet lettuce and two and a half for both, two and a half for possibly you know, derogatory to the umpire mm-hmm. and also that language, we need to make a point that it's not acceptable anymore. It's interesting you should say that and you broke it up into the way you speak to umpires, which is one part of it, mm. and the other is what he actually said because I was going to ask you, what do you think the response would have been if, say, if a female player had said to a female umpire, you speak like a little girl? Good question. I'm not sure. I, I, I'm not sure whether I'm in a position to say whether that's offensive or not. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because now that we have women in the game and women umpiring, there's not going to be one set Mm. of rules that fits all. And that's Mm. an example of it. And, you know, if a female player had said it to another female player, does that cop a fine Mm. or does it not? This is an opportunity for us, a jumping off point, I think, to accept that as your article um, makes the point, we're not all the same. We actually have to approach this with a different set of eyes. Even with the the Dane Rampey one. Am I offended? No, I'm not offended because I'm not a little girl. Mm. Um, I'll probably ask you guys, did Mm. did you take offence to it? (laughs) Well, for me, it's it's reminiscent of that. You're kicking like a girl. It was a put down. Yeah. Mm. And it was using the image of... It being less somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. But can I just acknowledge you saying that, that I don't know that I'm the one to answer that? I, I just... That says so much about, and I think also something that the AFL has to think about with the match review panel is that there are different experiences for different people. That's why we need diversity in those positions of authority because it does bring a different angle. Thank you for saying that. No, it's the same with all the the Aboriginal issues. I'm not the best person to talk about that and find people about that because I'm not living in their life and their shoes and their background. People say, well, why do we need diversity? Surely we can all make decisions about people. And when I was on the board at the Saints, um, we we lobbied long and hard to find some really good females to come on board and, and we had to. And and people were saying, but yeah, I'm sure it's just best person, best person. But it's a different perspective completely. And they, they were the two of the best directors that I ever worked with. This week, Emma wrote a piece that was talking about the Hall of Fame. And she did talk about the issue of Stephen Milne being elevated to legend status Mm -hmm. at St Kilda. And Emma's contention is that while there are systems in place that make a decision pretty much about something just on field, that perhaps we've reached a time when we need to think about off-field behaviour as well. Do you have an opinion on that? I think we do. And I think we have seen it to a degree with the the likes of of Gary Ablett and Ben Cousins and those players and Wayne Carey even probably in in terms of what they did on the field, walk-up starts. First eligible opportunity to be in the Hall of Fame, they should be. But there's been a lag 
And I think that has been a, a slightly subtle way of saying, hey, yeah, we are looking at this side as well, but there's nothing concrete. There's, there's nothing concrete saying, you know, like, like the Brownlow, it's for the best and the fairest. So if you get reported, you don't win it. Um, potentially we say, you know what, off the field, if you're not a great person, well, then you don't get in the Hall of Fame. So we, we might need to actually determine what the criteria is. Is it just on field or is it both? And if it's both, well, you know what, you muck up, you don't get in. That's the kind of thing that you could really agitate for change with inside your footy club because that's one thing you are an expert in, Nathan. My Just football saying, club? Yeah, your footy club. You've got a voice in there. You can walk in there and demand some change on the committee. On I possibly committee. could. Yeah. Uh, look, and to be honest, uh, it, it's not something that I've thought about before. I, I know it's there and that's why these guys haven't got in, mm. but the, the actual reasons why and the, reper- the those wider repercussions and the message, probably the message that it sends is the, probably the most important thing. Yeah. I recommend reading yeah. Em's article. Yeah, well, <laughs> shoot it through Em. I try and avoid your stuff, but I'll... <laughs> so you wrote a piece for the New Daily about uh, goal kicking and the skill <laughs> AFL players have lost. You're saying they're not living they're not living up to it. They're not carrying their weight. What's that about? No, that was in my grumpy old man face. Um, <laughs> face. <laughs> M knows that I can I can get angry at these sorts of things and, and yell at clouds. But uh, it's particularly this weekend, uh, Port Adelaide th- three goals twelve. Eric Hipwood two goals five. This season is so close. We put up with players missing easy goals. They have professional full-time footballers and it's not good enough but it's either technique or mental ability you can see some of them just saying I just need to relax I just need to relax and they walk in and the ball's wobbling all over the place and they're just jointing in and they poke the ball relaxing is completely the wrong thing you should do you should actually just steal yourself to go back and kick the goal. So I've got my routine. I'm going to steal myself. I'm going to go back. No, relaxing is not what you need to do. And you see so many of them just trot in. And I think one of the other issues is that there's a bit of a dilemma with clubs. If you highlight it too much, mm-hmm. mm. does that make the mentally fragile mm. even more fragile? Jeez, I've been practicing all week. I better not miss this. Where's the fine line between mm. too much practice, not enough practice, right amount of practice? It's it's a dilemma. You um was a bit of an iconic look from you is that you always wore a helmet. Fashion statement. <clears throat> yeah. And you continue. You're still a fashion, total fashion plate these days. <laughs> Wearing the helmet back then, can you talk us through why you did and what you thought? thoughts are on concussion as we sit here today. Yeah, certainly. So I played my first five years without it. Uh, I got to a stage, I think it was early 90s, where if I got a a whack in the head, uh, in about five minutes or so, I'd get the blurred vision and couldn't see. And then after the game, I'd get the nausea and the headaches, similar to a migraine. Had all the tests done and, and they actually diagnosed it as a form of migraine rather than concussion, which was good for me, which meant if I had one, I could still play next week. And so it, it worked in my favour. But as we know now, everybody has different symptoms of concussion. And it actually was. It was just my brain rattling around, so it was a concussion. But I had it probably about three out of five weeks and Kenny Sheldon, the coach, said, look, we can't afford to play you if you're going to come off for half an hour all the time, so you have to try something. And the only thing really those days was a helmet. So I thought, reluctantly, I'll try it. It wasn't a fashion statement by any means that you want to put on. I tried it, and anecdotally, all I can say is that I had the incident less wearing it. I'd get a whack, and and I'd think, okay, is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? And nine times out of ten, it wouldn't happen. I still got it through hits in the nose and the jaw and things like that. So um, it was an issue through those sorts of things, but I did have it less. So when these doctors say they don't work, all, all I can say is, I had the issue less wearing it than when I wasn't wearing it. 
But I, look, I do think the AFL are doing some really, really good things. The fact that now that if a player says he's he's fine and he wants to go back on, I, had, I heard Nick Rewalt talking about an incident that uh, he had last year where he came off the field, he did the con- concussion test, he passed the concussion test completely, and the doctor said, no, mate, looking at the video, by the way you fell, the way you were holding your hand, you're not going back on. That's a sign. And then the coaches say, fine. That's all good. To get to that stage, so even if your players are passing concussion tests, they're not going back on, that's a huge leap mm. in my mind that uh, look after the players. If your daughter goes on to play AFLW for St Kilda, will you encourage her to wear a helmet? I, I'm, I'm not an advocate for everybody wearing it. If you've got an issue, then yes. If, if you feel like you, you want to, absolutely go ahead. As we've seen with boxers and things like that, some people just got hard heads. It takes a lot to concuss them. So why would you, unless you're worried about uh, abrasions and cuts and things like that, wear one. As soon as I spot her having any particular issues, we'll then, we'll, we'll talk about it. I had quite a few talks with um, Angus Brayshaw at Melbourne when he was deciding whether to wear one or not. His mum wanted him to, he didn't want to. We just sat, sat down and we said, look, mate, if you get another serious concussion, what does that mean for you? And he said, well, it's probably, they won't let me play anymore. And I said, okay, well, if that happens, you've got the rest of your life to look back and say, did I do everything possible that would allow me to play? Maybe would a helmet have worked? Let's not look back at that and let's just try everything we can. And touch wood, he's still going okay at the moment. So I think uh, it's it's horses for courses. I'm not one that says everybody should wear one. Another unintentional side effect of you wearing that, though, was that you're a champion in a way for looking different. I remember kids (laughs) in my street. Weird um, or different? (laughs) No, I mean this in a really serious way that you, by looking different, um, allowed other people to... um, um, who have a disability, who wore something or were teased. Were you ever teased about oh, it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, when, as soon as you got near the boundary line, you'd cop it. You know, where'd you park your bike and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> Nothing really witty that I can say. <laughs> that, that, that was a good one. And Dermot Bird and standing behind you sort of pulling the strings at the back saying, what are you wearing that for? All that sort of stuff. And <sighs> um, the end of the day, what, what got me through was if I don't wear this, I'm going to be sitting up in the stands not being able to play football. I would do anything to get out there and play football. So if you had said run around with a big red flag on top of your head, I would have done that. If people took solace out of that saying, you know, it's okay to be a little bit different, well, then that that's great. Flag would have helped with Brownlow votes. <laughs> yeah. It's a neon sign. It's a yeah. good point, Nicole. Yeah. It's just, a good just point. Saying, just yeah. saying. So I would have not saying some of the things I said to one of my that too. Yeah. <laughs> Any regrets? Any regrets? Um, no. Okay. No. I wouldn't have done a lot of things that I did if society had been like it is now, if that makes sense. Yeah. Some of the things I said to umpires and some of the things I said to other players, but that was how we did things. Now we're... Uh, a lot smarter. Society's moved on and um, I, I don't regret those things, but I would regret them if I said them now. That makes sense. That's called learning. Yeah. I think that's called evolution. Evolving. Getting old. Yeah. No, I think it's called evolution. Mm. Yeah, uh, the game is certainly evolving yeah. very, very quickly. It's time for us to go around the grounds. 
I'm Phil Cleary and I'm a long-time campaigner around violence towards women and I've been a footballer and an independent politician and an author, so a range of very uh, experiences in life. We love speaking to you, Phil Cleary. You are about to go down to Wangaratta to talk about violence against women and ways to combat that in communities. And what are some of the ways that you use football and your journey to give a voice to how we can combat violence against women? Well, football clubs are a great gathering places for men and and in particular if you get involved in community football they're places where young men gather and we all know and we talk about this uh, ad nauseum that we want to talk to young men at the formative stages and footy clubs are great places to be. Now that's been enhanced by the fact that we now have women's teams so what it means, like in the countryside, you had netball and football gatherings, but they were still a bit separate. So go to the football in the, in the city, for example. Now, local clubs have women's teams. That means there are challenges for young men. What kind of behaviour do you engage in? Uh, are the same old jokes that you might have used with your mates OK in the company of women? Or if you're actually engaged in or believe in gender equity... Uh, that we, you know, women have got to share the territory with us. Does that mean you can disparage them uh, like some commentators in AFL football ranks do? Uh, no. So you get a conversation going. That's important. One of the things that we talk about, Phil, is how difficult it can be sometimes to call out those kinds of sexist jokes. I'd imagine it's even harder to know what to do when you suspect that somebody on your team is behaving violently. What sort of advice do you give those people? Well, look, you know what? I reckon the first start is to have a discussion about the cultural settings. So let's be clear on the rules of engagement. What is it about a set of words that is disparaging? I told a story before, but so I'm at West Coburg, we're coaching under 16s. The opposition team are all are up for it, you know, they're warrior-like, and they're using the FC word. You're a bunch of F and C's, dot, 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 and on it went. And I was standing there on the boundary thinking, God, you know, like, isn't this worth a discussion? So we had a discussion with the boys, either during the game or certainly during the week, and we, I said, all right, what about the use of this kind of language? Is the C word offensive? You know, does it have the capacity to be offensive? The upshot was that, one boy there stood up and said, well, you know, you know, Phil, I think it is. I wouldn't like it said about in the company of my mother or my sister or said about my mother and sister. I reckon we should agree not to use the word. So, you know, some people out there, the, uh, the right-wingers and the others and the apologists for patriarchy will say, oh, that's political correctness gone mad. Well, it's not. It's actually a young bloke saying the word does have meaning. It is used in a disparaging way about women. Uh, we don't want to use it. And, uh, and then we take the discussion further to the point of, well, if women want to use it, that's their call. But when men use it, it's got a political context, a patriarchal history. They are the possible implications of how women can understand. So that was one moment in time. And so that leads to all the discussions, leads on to the all range of discussions we can have. You know, I'll stop there and say challenging a violent man, if you know about a violent man in your territory, it's difficult. There's no doubt about that, and young men will tell you that. There are a lot of organisations, institutions, places that are now putting protocols into place in their workplaces, aren't they? Uh, medic, the medical profession, hospitals are reacting differently. Uh, everyone's talking about it, and we're, we're, uh, we're trying to educate people about the workplace. I suppose you women probably could sense if one of your mates was in a bit of trouble, she might tell you something. Uh, for blokes to spot it, it might be more difficult, but at least we're thinking about how we see the signs 
and responding to it appropriately now, that's important. Like people now realise you do get an intervention order. You do get assistance. You can go to the coppers. You can get looked after. Most significantly, that bloke has no right to treat you like that and stop believing that you're the reason for his bad behaviour or for his violence and his bullying. You have been doing this a really long time. It does feel like we're having the same conversations over and over again. How do you keep going? I just find that there are new moments in time and I, that, that give me optimism. And I often say to people, you can be walking a path and you don't realise that there's someone walking the same path as you until you turn sideways and you go and say, oh, g'day. How are you? We're walking that same path and you know we are so far ahead of where we were 30 years ago. Here's a group of women talking about football. That didn't happen 30 years ago. Here are we today talking about the question of violence and the, and the narrative in football around women. You don't solve the problem till you acknowledge you've got it. We've acknowledged we've got it and now we're setting about trying to solve it. And, and it's creative and, and interesting. So I love my time coaching young blokes and football teams. And I'm at Avondale Heights with Donald McDonald, <laughs> former North Melbourne player, is coaching the side. I'm director of football coaching and club culture. And we put into our handbook a few pars about gender equity and respectful relationships. We'll come back to the question of what you, what that would mean for discussions around men, men who might be violent towards women. So I see that as progress. Phil, um, as Nicole alluded to, it was 1987 when your sister Vicky Cleary was murdered at the hands of her ex-boyfriend and that has been the start of your journey. You've been talking about this for such a long time. What's been the reaction of men to you throughout this journey and is it changing? Well, one of the reasons I, I um, am involved in the campaign goes beyond my sister also. Like, I went to university in the 70s, you know, I read Greer. Uh, I was across feminist thinking because that was part of the academic construct. So, and I went out and was a teacher. And I just thought about this the other day. Being a school teacher at the time in, in the late 70s, most of my colleagues, half my colleagues were women. So we kind of just got used to the idea men and women shared the same ideas. So if I, it wasn't like one had more power or more authority in that workplace. We went out and had drinks. We got, you know, tipsy and did messed around and had good fun and all the rest of it, but we shared ideas and, and we, so it was a bit of a level of equality built. I think the fact that I was um, a hard footballer, ironically, helped. It's a bit of a laugh, isn't it? You know, you wind the clock back and people say, oh, Jesus, that Phil Cleary, he's a dirty bastard when he played. You know, I bump into people who say, even little old ladies will say to me, oh, I used to abuse you, Phil, you were so dirty. <laughs> but the irony is that it probably enabled me to be able to speak more um, comprehensively about it. So I think men generally are pretty good with me about it. Also, I suppose maybe at the personal level they go, oh, Phil did lose his sister. But I can tell you at the same time, I've had exchanges with people that are not so pleasant. You know, I had a bloke say to me once when I said something about something that he'd said, uh, you know, that he drew on the fact that I'd had a particular experience and he was sort of suggesting that that coloured my views. And I didn't take too kindly to that because I was talking about empirical fact. Overwhelmingly, yeah, it's been OK. I think men get it. So when, if I go back now to Avondale Heights... If I go and talk to the boys at Avondale, they get it. But I tell them, you know, I've got an experience, but I'm also across this question. But we talk 
and they can ask me questions and we can share ideas. Now, it doesn't mean you win everyone over, but you won't win them over in the first instance. But I think over time you can. Bill, you're heading out to Wangaratta to speak on this topic. Is there a difference in challenges in regional parts of the country as opposed to the cities? You know, I, I don't tend to think so, except that I... Keep, I keep arguing the place to change the world is the locality. And you are footy aficionados, so where do we change it? In our local sporting clubs. In our, Forget the AFL. They're okay. They can do their bit, you know, but we'll drive the world. Women in their footy clubs, and, you know, I don't have to tell you and I don't have to sound patronising. You women know your footy stuff. If you're in a local footy club, you've got to have your say. Like I'm at Avondale Heights. Uh, the, the president, Sev Francis, has experienced violence from a partner in previous years, some years back. And so she and I share a, share our understandings. Ironically, I taught her at Avondale Lights, you know, can you believe that? So, And I was teaching there when my sister was murdered. So, you know, all these convergence of facts. No, so go to the locality and then talk about what you think you could do in your place. And that's for all of us, isn't it? So we go to our local sporting club. Uh, we go to our workplace. Uh, we're in our own family. We're in our own neighbourhood. We can be engaged in so many activities. But, you know, local footy clubs are fascinating because people gather, you know, you stand on the boundary with, say, other mothers or sisters or friends talking footy and life. Your, your conversation will move into other territories, won't it? Hey, we haven't got enough resources here at this place. We need infrastructure. Hey, girls want to play footy. What about showers? What about this? So you begin a big discussion that takes you into gender equity questions. Going to the countryside, what, what countryside has a slight advantage, I reckon, and there's a bit more uh, community, isn't there? And so people get very passionate about their locality. You know, it's just great for us to continue to have the conversations and I'm going to go to Wangaratta and really look forward to that and we're going to talk about different things you can do in your footy club. When I was coaching at West Coburg, for example, 16s and 18s, my key, key person alongside me was a woman who was doing the stats. If you were alongside me at, down at, you know, at Avondale Heights and we're doing stats, you know, and I look to you and say, hey, what's the inside 50s? And a group of blokes see a woman talking up the mm. data. Now, you look at AFL. Do you see a woman on the ground? No. Mm. no. All those images can change. You, yeah. If you imagine a woman standing down at the interchange bench, you know, dictating the movement of players, as we move through, more and more of this is going to happen and it's going to happen at... Lo look, why is it going to happen at local clubs? Because half the population are women and you need them, volunteers, don't mm, you? You've exactly. got to have women involved. So you've got to train your women up around the mechanics of the game and women are playing football. It's all there for us. That's the place to be. That's why inner sanctum is so important. <laughs> Sorry, outer <laughs> sanctum. Phil, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us today. We love having you on the show and best of luck down at Wangaratta. They're lucky to have you. Thank you very much. All right, ladies, let's wrap this puppy up and get out of here. Any final business, Lucy? Yes, there is a new anthology out and it's called Hashtag Me Too. It is a collection of stories by 35 contributors who share their hashtag Me Too moments, analysis and commentary, and it includes a piece by our very brilliant Nicole Hayes. Can I say very brilliant? I think I can. Yeah. Can I blush? Um, it is powerful and it is emotional 
and it's personal and I highly recommend you reading it. This is edited by Natalie Conyu, Christy Nyman, Maggie Scott, Miriam Sved, and it's out now. It's so good, Nicole. It was such a powerful piece. I'm so proud of you You're crying again. Um, and also, Kate's not here, but I just wanted to say thank you on her behalf, but also on behalf of all of us at The Sanctum for your support that you gave her after last week's podcast. It was emotionally taxing for her to put herself on the line like that, and you guys responded with the biggest group hug. We know that there's been a lot of communication from you guys talking about how much it meant to you, especially people who are kind of in the same boat as Katie. So we really appreciated that. And just a follow-up that Custis Amenia is appealing the decision that's been handed down. So we will continue to follow that story. Thanks so much again for all of your support on socials, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We are loving getting reviews on iTunes. It's making such a difference in um, smashing the patriarchy. So thanks for that. Thanks for joining us today there's only one thing left to say and if you've got your headphones in if you're sitting in the car if you're in the kitchen say it with us one two three go Go footy even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.